Blessings to everyone. You know, we're, we're right now starting this new series, this idea of wisdom for living, and it's connected to where we've been, if you think about it. We wanted everybody to kind of see this as kind of a continuation. We finished Easter. We were talking about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus and what it meant in terms of our future. We called it future life. We looked at his words. We talked about how what Jesus told us about what was coming and what heaven was, how that was really important in terms of how it in, impacted our present. So we were, we were really trying to get the idea that we would think about the future in the context of how it needs to impact our present. And so what we're doing from that is we're then taking it further. We're gonna say, well, okay, if that's true, he wants us to be thinking about an eternal perspective, what does it then look like to live well in the present? How do we live a wise life? How do we live a growing life? How do we grow? in our wisdom, in our understanding of how to approach things, relationships, how to, how to incorporate or how to have God's wisdom affect us in more meaningful ways. We're gonna look at that a lot this summer. So it's a very practical approach. We're talking about how to live well. We're talking about how to grow. We're gonna sit with these themes, these concepts. But I'm gonna go ahead and pray, ask God to bless this word that we're about to share so as we kick off this time. And Lord, we thank you, we, we pray that you would be near to us, even as we've already begun to just welcome you in our own hearts. You know, we've worshiped you. We, we opened up by singing about your presence and, and the, the sweetness and the beauty of your presence. And maybe we have come into this uh, house, all of us, we come into church sometimes with different things in our minds. Some of us are carrying heavy weights. Others of us, well, we have other things that we're, getting, we're gonna be heading into, but either way, I pray that we would, Lord, just have an attentiveness right now to what it is you might wanna to say to us. I know you care about us, I know you do, and you care about the way we affect other people. And uh, I just pray that there would be some depth that would happen in our own lives and hearts because of what we're sharing together. And I just ask for the blessing over all of us. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen, God, let it be. So again, um, this is where we're going. We're, we're opening up again this idea of wisdom for living. Now, what I would like to do is take the first part of the message and sit with a, like, it's almost like a Bible study. I want to look at uh, a portion of Paul's letter to the church of Colossians. It was called the church of Colossae. And I want to look at how he opens up that letter, and it's going to connect with this idea of wisdom. In fact, it's a beautiful connector between where we've been and, and where we're going. So I want to look at a piece of scripture. Then what I'd like us to do after we look at it and just kind of move through it, is then apply some things, look at some concepts about how then we might want to start thinking about what it means to have wisdom for a more effective and growing life. And, um, well, we'll just start. Let's just go ahead and do that now. We'll, we'll pick up with Colossians 1. This is written, again, you can follow in your Bibles or in the handout, the scripture's there as well. But in Colossians 1, this is the opening chapter, Paul starts to write. He's, he makes this statement. He says, this letter is from Paul, who's chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ, Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. So Timothy, his son of the faith. But Paul refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, an ambassador, one who has been sent to represent the Lord in a unique way. Of, of course, many of us know when he says he was chosen by the will of God, that it's his way of saying that, you know, I wasn't always uh, a follower of Jesus. Many of us know that Paul at one time was known as Saul of Tarsus, he was a highly intellectual, fiercely violent opponent of the way of Jesus. He has this transformative experience on the road leading to Damascus that alters and changes his life. He sees, he says, the risen Jesus. From that moment on, he's committed to following him. 
fully and passionately. He does, with a high degree of effectiveness. What we know now is though he's writing this letter, when he writes it, he's writing it from a place that is not ideal. When this letter is written, when these words are being put down on pen, he's actually writing to a church that he himself did not found. Maybe it's helpful uh, to put up a, a, a map just to give everybody again an idea, because I always like to say, show everyone that the Bible takes place in real places at real times in history. It's, it's not just some made-up stuff. It actually happened in real places that you can still see today that have the roots and the evidences of that um, expansion of, of the entire church of Jesus that occurred. And Paul's writing, you can see where Colossae is. Colossae is, today we would call it modern-day Turkey. It's part of a place that's very much in the news. This whole region is, uh, seems like a, a constant hotbed of activity. You see where Jerusalem is. Go right up the coast, Mediterranean coast, you know what starts happening. You get in a place like Lebanon, Syria, there's Turkey, you know, this whole area. And then you go, you go eastward, you're getting into Iraq, Iran. You're talking about a lot of action that's happening in this area right now. Paul was writing from Rome. He was actually, this is important to appreciate what we're about to read, he was actually in a place of confinement. He was under house arrest. So when he's writing these words, he has never been to Colossae. He, that church is founded, that community of believers is founded by one of his disciples or one of his uh, team members, a man named Epaphras. Epaphras evidently was the one who plants this church community in Colossae, but Paul is writing to them because he, from Rome because it's important for them. He, he, he knows that there's some things that are happening. He's worried about some false teaching getting rooted in, it's particularly around who Jesus is. So he's writing part of the letter to clarify who Jesus is. And he uses some amazing superlative descriptions, even in that first chapter, that immediately will get, would get our attention. But, my, but again, what I want us to remember is he's writing this letter basically un, as an unfree person. He is chained. Even though he's not in a prison cell, he's in a house that he's been forced to pay for with his own money, awaiting trial. He's under house arrest. He's got a Roman guard chained to him. And he never goes anywhere without that guard, or at least publicly. So he's, he's under arrest. He's writing this out of a very um, unfavorable place. Now, I want us to then watch what he has to say to these new believers, these, these growing believers, followers of Jesus in Colossae. That's how this opens up. He says, look, um, we are writing to God's holy people. Uh, the older version says saints. Basically, what that means is those who've been set apart to follow Jesus, um, who have a, a deep and abiding love for him, uh, and a devotion to him. He says, look, you who are faithful brothers and sisters, may God our Father give you grace and peace. Uh, it's a very affirming word. Paul is starting up this letter with uh, a tremendous kind of, uh, I want to say, a warmth there. He wants them to know that we're all family. Now, brothers and sisters, interesting way of talking about what it means because uh, to be part of the, the family of Jesus is is like he's saying that it doesn't mean we don't have natural family and blood family. And, and, but what he was saying is to, to come to Christ, to live in community, is to almost engage an, an additional kind of a family life. It's meant to have the deep kind of love and bonds that characterize family when it's working at its best. <coughs> so we call one another, he Paul says, brothers and sisters. You know, it was an un unusual thing. It had never happened before quite like this. The world had never, again, we look at it from a modern context, 2,000 years removed, but the world had never seen anything quite like this. We're talking about, especially in a Greco-Roman world, but this was true of you know, people groups all over the world throughout history, you never had the merging together 
of different classes of people in the unique expression that was taking place right here. The idea that you could get people who were at the very top of the power chain intermixing with people who were essentially at the very bottom. Um, we're talking about huge, significant landowners and people who were still slaves and servants at times coming together with a lot of people in the middle classes as well to uniquely express a common love for one another that was distinct and unusual and never actually seen before. To then take it even one step further and to see one another not on the basis of our labels in terms of our social standing or even ethnicity, but to see one another on the basis of a common love that was shared for Jesus. It was an amazingly beautiful expression of the reality of Christ. It's still supposed to be that way at some level today, and I know that's God's ideal. And but he, Paul is writing to them. He's saying, "Look, I, I just, I, you know, I'm so impressed with you guys." That's what he's basically saying. Look at verse number three of this. He goes on to say, "He says, look, we always pray for you, and we're going to kind of move through this this passage and just sort of explain it. We always pray for you. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people." So he says, look, we pray for you, and we've heard of your, your you know, faith. In fact, what we, give, we give thanks for two specific things. I don't know if you saw them. He says, when we pray for you, we are actually extraordinarily thankful for two things that characterize you as a church, as a people, as a community. He says, one of those things is that you've got this amazing faith in Christ Jesus. And he's essentially saying that it's vibrant, it's real, it's amazingly authentic. We've heard all about it, how, how, how real it is, and how it reflects itself in the way that you interact with one another. In fact, he says, we've also taken note of the amazing way that you love all of God's people, that there is a sense of deep community, sacrificial, caring, community life that characterizes who you are as a church. He says, and then he says, but we know where this comes from. Look at verse 5. He says this. He says, these two qualities that you possess, he says, you know what? It comes from your confident hope. Now, can you watch, can you, when you read this fifth verse, can you identify the connection between what we've shared previously about future life and what Paul's saying. Look what he says. He says, we know that these qualities that you possess as a people, as a community, come from your confident hope. Look at that phrase. Confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have, you know, you have had this expectation ever since you actually first heard the truth of the good news, this message of Jesus. In other words, this confident hope, what, what you, how you model your life with God in community and how you have such a vibrancy of faith that's authentic and real, it's connected to something. It's connected to this confident hope of what you believe is reserved for you in heaven. And he says, you know, you know that because heaven is ahead of you and the way you think about it, then you, because of your understanding of future life, he says, it affects the way you live your present life. So he's saying exactly what we've been talking about. And he says, look, I, and I know that this is something that's been working inside of your life ever since you first began to receive Jesus and follow him. Verse 6, look what he says here. Notice the connection between the impact of the gospel and changed lives. Look at verse 6. He says, this is the same good news that came to you. And in fact, it's going out over all the world. And it is bearing fruit. Bearing, in fact, it's bearing fruit everywhere. In the way that it's bearing fruit is by changing lives. Just as it changed your lives, this message is changing. This message of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and who he is. It's changing people's lives. In fact, it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. He's talking about it. He says when the gospel really hits someone's life, he says it changes it. And in fact, the, the truth is that, you know, some of us, we come to the Lord in, in different, uh, many, we all come in different ways. 
Some of us came to the Lord very gradually, if I can put it that way. Um, it was a, a process of opening up our heart to him. Some of us are there right now. We're, we, haven't even, we haven't really made that step, but we're real close. Our heart is being more and more open to faith. Others of us, it was like it came out of a very traumatic time in our life that called us to a place of reordering and opening up ourselves to God in a way that we had never would have done if we hadn't been desperate. And that moment is something we remember. Others of us, it comes as a, as a special time when we really, for the first time, we begin to see things in different ways. That it was as if scales were removed from our eyes and all of a sudden the things of God that would have had no appeal to us all of a sudden became like rare and precious treasure. And the things of the Lord begin to spark a life inside of our heart and begin to call us to growth and pursuing him. I'm saying is we all come to Jesus in different ways. And one of the things we know is that when he shows up in someone's life, it changes that life. It's designed to be transformative. It's a process. It's an event. It's both. It's not either or. It's both and. But I'll tell you this. Once you meet Jesus, it's kind of like we're ruined. And the reason is we can never be who we were ever again. His love will pursue us. Even when we run from him, we cannot escape him. Like Francis Thompson said when he said he was running from God in his great poem, The Hound of Heaven, he says, God is on my trail, chasing me down the alleys. He was getting swamped in his addictions. And he says, but God is on my trail. When the love of God finds us, when we open up our heart and experience him, when our life is transformed, when, when we're touched by his reality, in a way we've been ruined by his love. Because at the end of the day, nothing else can truly satisfy the longing of our soul. And we can run, but we cannot hide because God's love is on our trail. And he will not let us go. And we will not have peace until we find our peace in him. Because there's a part of us that was designed exclusively for God. And nothing else can satisfy that longing. We may not always get it right. We may stumble. We may fall. We may disregard a love that never quits on us. But one thing is for sure. That love is real and powerful and is pursuing and it gave everything for us. And he will not let us go. He will follow us. And as a result of this, Paul's saying, look, your life has been impacted beautifully, deeply, profoundly by the amazing love of Christ. He goes on to take it even further than that. He says, because that's what happens to everybody who really meets Jesus. He says their lives start to change. Look at verse 7, though. He says, you learned about the good news. There it is from my friend, from Paul's team member that he had raised up, Epaphras, a beloved co-worker. Look how he's described. This is a man, this beautiful man. He says, he's Christ's faithful servant. He brought this message to you. You received it. And he's been helping, helping um, us on your behalf. He, he's a blessing to us. Um, he's, we're all, we're all, he's saying we're all connected. And Epaphras is a, a faithful, wonderful servant of Jesus. He's Christ's faithful servant. What a way to be described. He's helping us on your behalf. Well, he's a blessing through and through. The man is a blessing. But notice what else he says. He says, you learned about this good news from Epaphras. And I was thinking about this, guys. Not a one of us here who's come to know Jesus wasn't affected by other people. Every one of us is connected. And if we were to actually look at the strings that connect us, they're so profoundly intricate, intricate that we can't even see them. They go so far and in so many different places in time and space um, that the fact is that we'll, we'll never know all the people who we're connected to, that our story of in Christ is connected to. And we know that there are people who've deeply influenced us to follow Jesus. Anyone who's been doing this for any amount of time knows that we're not a, a one-person show. 
that maybe even now there are people who've prayed for us, who believe for us, who talk to us, whose lives crossed our path. At certain seasons of our life, different people have meant tremendous, um, I would say, uh, not only were they tremendous blessings to us, but they've been of tremendous value to us. And we, we can even now, in our mind's eye, we can think of them. Some of them aren't even living anymore, but they made a huge difference in our life for God. Some of, sometimes periodically it's healthy to come back and just pause for a time and reflect on people who, who have made a difference in terms of our love for the Lord, who've invested into our lives or who we've known. Some, some people who've um, impacted my life for Jesus, I never even met them. I've only read about them. I read their story, their books, and they've, they've mentored me from afar. Some people, um, when I was younger, Sunday school teachers, you know, pastors, youth pastors, whatever, friends, you know, people, many people have affected our lives for Jesus. Um, someone had enough courage at one point for some of us to talk to us about him. Others of us have believing family members who never gave up on us. Even when we ran away, they kept praying, shooting their prayers like arrows through time on our behalf until they came and resided back into our heart and we came home. The Lord's ways is profound, but he uses people as... And one of the things that I've, I've been thinking a lot about is the value, if we're talking about the wisdom of life and how to live the wise life with God, the biblically informed life of wisdom, how to have that show up in our lives. Part of what, one of the ways that I think it is, is enhanced is when we, we try to build relationships uh, with people at different places and life stages. I would submit that one of the, one of the best things we can do, and I try, try to do this too, I try to have someone who's in my life that's older than me, who's been further down the line, um, Someone who's followed God, not perfect, but well. In fact, I think it's almost good sometimes for someone to know failure. Scars are, can be good. If someone has no scars, that's tough for me. Because I might go, why? Have you ever felt pain? Do you know disappointment? No, I want someone with some scars. I don't want them just like scars everywhere all the time. Getting, you know, because, and I don't mean that in the, hear my heart. What I'm saying is we have to learn from our mistakes. Hopefully we grow through them. All right, I hope I said it the best way. Didn't mean to injure anyone's walk if it might have been real painful. But the fact is that we, we need people in our lives. I have people who are older who've been through some things. I like to have people who are about my own, my own life stage as well. And I think it's helpful to have people who are younger than us who are seeing things differently and we can work together and challenge one another to stay fresh. I think it's very important to have that as a growing person. Anyway, Epaphras was a blesser. Paul, let's just push on here. Verse 8. He goes on to say, this is not only, look at this, we'll just finish with these three verses and, and then, then shift a little bit. He says, he has told us about the love for others and the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has given you. I mean, the way that you love people is amazing and it's, it's a representation of God's Spirit at work in your life. He says, so we have not stopped. You know, because of that, we haven't stopped praying for you. No, not, not since we, we first heard about you. In fact, now notice the connection to our theme. In fact, ever since we first heard about you, we have asked God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you, here it is, spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because then, look at this, the way that you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. And, and all the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better and better. Look what he's praying for, that you would be filled with his knowledge, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will for your life, 
that you would be filled with spiritual wisdom, that you would have understanding. And he says, and that our prayer is that that wisdom and that understanding that God will give you, that we're praying that he gives you, would show up, look at that, in very real tangible ways. So it's not just a, a, a mental, theoretical, or theological belief system that sort of sits outside of my life. He says, no, what we're praying is that that wisdom and that knowledge and that understanding would show up in the dailiness of your life. Look at that. In that your life, the way you live, will honor and it will please the Lord. That your life, the way that you approach life, the way that you approach people, that, in fact, he says that your lives will produce every kind of, of good fruit. All, that it will show up in a variety of different ways. And look at the words, that you will grow, that you will grow, and that you will learn, learn more and more about God, better. you will know more of God better and better, that you will know him better and better than you ever have in your entire life. I mean, look at that appeal, look at that prayer. And what does it remind me? One of the things it's telling us, and I'll just put a couple things up, because again, this is the foundation for where we're going in the weeks ahead, is that, and so we're, here, there's some very specific, wonderful things about the Christ-centered wisely live life. And the first one, that, and Paul makes it really clear, is that it is a vibrant and growing life. This, is, this life in Christ, it is, it is not intended to be, to be a dry, um, static, unenthused, boxed-in, kind of boring, rigid, unartistic, suffocating religious experience. It's meant to be, it's meant, to, look at the words he's using. He's talking about wisdom. He's talking about growth. He's talking about an expansiveness. He's talking about a vibrancy in our life with God. You know, it was Irenaeus, one of the ancient church fathers who said, the glory of God is a man, is a man or woman fully alive. I always say this, and, and it struck me, I, that when people saw Jesus walking down the street, they did not say hide, or there he is. The unhappy man. <laughs> when they saw Jesus, he wasn't dour. He wasn't depressed. He wasn't anti-life. When you saw Jesus, people came alive. And one of the things, and I know we have different personalities, different dispositions, so I'm not saying that we're all supposed to be the same. But I am saying there is something about the joy of the Lord at work in our lives that needs to show up. And we are not defeated if we know him. So we cannot allow life circumstances, no, no matter how bad they are, no matter how difficult our wounds. And I'm not saying pretend there's not a problem when there is one. But I am saying is that there is an available grace in God that goes beyond even our own pain. Okay, just for a moment. Think about the imagery that Paul's using. Look at these words. He's saying words that have life all over them. When he talks to the Colossian church, he's basically saying, look, you know, your life with God, it's, it's a beautiful thing, and I pray that it would just continue to be dynamic. His words are hopeful. They're optimistic. They talk about things like change, like growth, like, like uh, the wonderful grace of God. The imagery is what? Of a green tree bearing all kinds of different fruits. It's showing up. It's got life all over. It's about expansion of, of knowledge and of wisdom and understanding. This is not a, a static, contained, dry, shriveled, kind of tightly wound experience. It's about the life of God. It's not a closed pond where things just kind of grow and are dead. It's about a living stream of water that Jesus said will flow out of your belly. And it didn't mean life's going to always be perfect. And in fact, think about for a moment, where is Paul writing this from? He is the one writing these words. 
He is writing these words from a place of confinement. He is telling them, grow, expand, let God's life move through you in amazing ways. While he himself is chained to a Roman guard, not free to go where he wants, when he wants, and how he wants to. He's writing it out of a place in which he has been hindered. And it reminds us that we, when we commit our way to Jesus, we can be alive in Christ. Listen, alive for others, even when we ourselves are feeling hindered at some level in our own life. That that, to some degree, we feel confined. Now, some of us might say, well, I feel confined by... Maybe, maybe some of us, we don't have... Obviously, we're not... None of us here are, are in lockdown. But we might feel like I have something that I, I do feel hindered by. I might have a physical thing that I struggle with. Not everybody even knows about it. it it's a hindrance for me. It's tough. Otherwise, it might be emotional stuff. Some of us did we got... We have ways of being that we've established, we kick back into. We don't even want them anymore. I talk about this all the time because it's so real. Some of us have been wounded and we have anger. And it's a low-grade anger and it shows up from time to time. We want to shake it off. Some of us feel very lonely. I, I, some, again, things that hinder us, things of our past that we wish we could erase, we can't. Even though I know I committed them to Jesus, they, they haunt me. Wounds, I don't know, things happen in life. Part of what I'm encouraged by, and I really mean encouraged in the sense that strength flows, is that even when things are tough, like they were for Paul, he is, he is giving life away. It shows us what God can do. He can take confining things, he can take hindering things, and, and, and his grace moves in our life in such a way that life flows to others through them. It's powerful. Uh, okay, now let's take it one step further. Look what else he gets at. So I'm going to say not only is this, this wise to live life to be vibrant and growing, but also, it's, and this is going to sound simple, but it's actually not that easy. He says, look, I want you to live in such a way that you honor and please God. So our life is designed, the wise life, and we're laying foundations here, the biblically informed wise life is to be God honoring. It's, it, in other words, its desire is to please the Lord. It... it it wants to live a life that's not as a people pleaser, not as a competitor, but we, we are being called to live for the audience of one. That at our best, we are living for God. And that affects the way we relate to other people. But we're, we're, living, for, we're living as one who wants to please him with the way that we construct our lives, the way that we love people, the way that we challenge things that we know are not what God wants. You know, I have, remember I mentioned that we all have different people who speak into our lives from time to time. I have certain people that I've read over the years that have made a tremendous impact on my own life with God. And one of those men um, is a man named Gordon McDonald. Gordon McDonald's an author that I've, I've come to love over the years. He's in his mid-70s now. Um, he wrote a book uh, a while back called uh, The Mid-Course Correction. And in this book, he, he was talking about this idea of the power of people in our lives who affect us and challenge us to do better, and then also the, the wisdom of living for the audience of one. Not as a competitive, not, not trying to compete with people or to live up to an image, but to live as one as one's surrendered. That wisdom at its core has to do with living for the audience of one. And when we live for God to please him, it, it, everything else starts to flow with life. But anyway, I'll re, I'm just 
sit with me. I want to read something to you, something that he wrote about his life. And um, he wrote this about his life when he was, again, he's writing this as an older man looking back on his life to a time when he was actually a teenager. And he says this, he goes, look, I've had the privilege of knowing many men and women of extraordinary character in the years of my life. He says, but one man stands out among them all. His name was Marvin Goldberg. And I write was because he died not long ago. I, I met Marvin Goldberg when I left my Colorado home to attend the Stony Brook School on Long Island in New York. I write, I write this because soon after I arrived, he went to work on my hidden life. I was 15 years old. He says, my recollection was that I was small, physically puny, socially immature, and academically mediocre. My fantasy, though, was to be a prep football star, a star running back. But that dream was not so merciless, mercifully put to death during the first week of fall practice when it became abundantly clear that I lacked the required nerve as well as the pounds to carry a football up the middle and into the line. But I was fast. And my first conversation with Goldberg was in conjunction with the Stony Brook track and field program, which he directed as its head coach. And, and he says, look, I'd like you to come down to the field tomorrow and work out with the few of the track men, he said. And I think we, we might make a runner out of you. And the next day, I appeared in shorts and sneakers, and I ran a, a few wind sprints for him. And he made a few encouraging comments about my running style. And he suggested that I come back again the next day. And I did. And I, and I kept coming back each day after that. And there was something about Marvin Goldberg that made you want to be near him. You knew instantly that he would bring out the best of you, that he would, he would care for you in ways that would far exceed the world of the quarter-mile oval. Something deep within said, stick with this man, and you're going to grow. And even as a 15-year-old, I was perceptive enough to get the message. And although I came to the track team as something of a sprinter, he, he had me running on the cross-country team. He says, it'll build your endurance. And, it, and, it, and listen, he said, it will be good for the battle you're going to face in your mind. The coach knew that in the end, a large part of competition on the track field is psychological. So each afternoon, we came to the track and checked a bulletin board that displayed each runner's workout plan for the day. Most of us dreaded this moment as we read the coach's latest menu for suffering. As we read the schedule written in a distinct handwriting, we would silently protest, there's no way I can do this. And then we would go out and do it for him. He was tough, but we trusted if he said we could do it, then we, we would be able to do it. Now, Coach Goldberg was not only committed to developing runners, he made no secret of the fact that he had a passion really, for building men. And Stony Brook was at the time a boys' school. And every bit of an athletic experience, as far as the coach was concerned, was tied tightly to some aspect of character development. He believed in the hidden life and in our deliberate cultivation. And he made it happen in the context of our athletic world. Now, here's what we're going to get to. He says, look, it was my first competitive experience. I was entered in the 200 meter. There were six runners, including me, on the starting line. But it was clear that my most serious challenge would come from a runner. His name was Alvarez, who wore a uniform from the Trinity Pauling School. He was big, he seemed a bit overweight, walked about heavily, and as I pounded the spikes that would hold my starting blocks in place, I actually dared to say to Coach Goldberg, I don't think I'll have much trouble taking him. And soon we were crouched in our blocks, the starter barked the traditional commands, runners on your marks, and the gun sounded. All six runners shot out, up and out, and, and of their starting positions and down the straightaway, and about 22 seconds later, Alvarez won going away. As I walked dejectedly back along the track, Coach Goldberg joined me, and he said this, Gordy, I have something to say to you. When you told me that you would have no trouble beating Alvarez, I knew you had lost the race already. And I decided to let you lose it, even though it might hurt the overall team scoring. Gordy, 
You must never, ever underestimate a competitor on the basis of what he looks like or what you've heard about him. First of all, you judged him on the basis of his body and not on the basis of his heart. Until you know what's in a man's heart, you'll never know what the man is. Second, you must never measure yourself against a competitor. You measure only against yourself. And this is the way it will be all the way through life. Listen, if your eyes are on what you think your competitors are going to do and not on the best you yourself can do, you'll lose all kinds of races over and over again. Then he says this. I never underestimated a competitor on the track ever again. And as hard as it was, I learned from them moment like these in the company of Marvin Goldberg, never to match myself intellectually, professionally, spiritually against anyone else in my adult life. The coach was laying the tracks for the day when it would become clear to me as a biblical person that all of life is played for an audience of one and never as a competition against my peers. It became clear to me as a biblical person, as a person who lived, sought to live a life in alignment with God's words, that I was to live my life for the audience of one, not as a competitor, not as trying to please people, but for the audience of one. See, that, that is so huge. It, it really illustrates the value of having people in our lives who will challenge us, but who will remind us that we are to live for God. Now, when we do that, listen, not only is then that wisdom going to show up in a God-honoring way, but here's the third piece, as, and Paul gets at this. He says what it's also going to mean is that we're going to need to then determine in our heart to cultivate a very personal relationship with Jesus, right? That's expanding. In other words... What shows up in public is always a result of what is taking place inside of us. That's why we talk about the value of, of building a life with Jesus. It's something that we have to, you know, it, it just doesn't happen. We don't all of a sudden just start performing something or we, 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 something that we really care about. You got to put time into. If we say we love someone, but we don't ever want to spend time with them, not really. We don't really question how committed we are to that love. I mean, because what love has to do is love grows by spending time and then not just spending time, but how we spend that time in that moment. How present are we? I remember one time, I mean, and the value of focus is huge. Because again, remember, what we practice, we perfect. What we practice, we make perfect. I mean, that's, the more we put into this, the more we're going to get out of it. It's just a law of reaping and sowing and planting and it's what the harvest is and if we if we have a passive approach to loving God then it's going to show up in probably mediocre ways but if we will pour our heart into it like David said you know I, I follow hard after you Lord if we will do that do you know what will happen we will things will grow in us we're, we're going to find out that things start expanding you know what Jesus when Jesus said he didn't say think about what he said he said Thomas words he said when you pray, say, did he say this? Give us this um, year, our yearly bread. Give us this month, our monthly bread. Give us this day, our daily bread. The Christian life, the life, the biblically informed life, the growing life, the expansive life, the spiritually vibrant life, it's, it, it's a daily thing. And a lot of times we get stuck in ruts, you know? I mean, habits are good. Uh, habits are good. Why? Good habits are good, good habits, because they save us mental energy. So we don't waste energy trying to think about what I have to do, get this together, because we do the same thing. So as a result, 
My, my, I'm, not, I'm not wasting time or energy thinking about it as I've got a good habit. But a good habit over time, even that needs to periodically be challenged because we can get into ruts. And a rut is like a groove that gets worn over time, over time. And then before long, we're doing the things that we used to do for, the, it, we were doing it, it was, we started with the right reason and it had a lot of life in it. But as, as it's going along, it's becoming more and more like I'm just kind of in the groove, walking in the rut. And I, now all of a sudden I'm stuck. I, I can't even, I'm not even getting out. See, the Lord wants us to have seasonal expansion in our lives. One of the things that's so clear here is that this is not meant to just be a static thing. It's a growing thing. That means we're going to have to make life adjustments at times. There are going to be times we're going to have to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to start reading God's word in a different way. I've, I've gotten slack on this. I, I'm, I'm not paying attention. Maybe I need to get, bring someone else into my life. We can train together. Think about when we're trying to train for something, for a race, for some type of an event. Not, you don't just get, get there and show up never putting any time into practice. No, the Christian life is no different. If we're serious about it, we're going to periodically have to really you know, shake some things up, maybe adjust something, clean out the room, move the furniture around, right? Bring someone else into the conversation, get another person in our life. Start having real conversations with God that challenge us in different ways. Say, you know what? I probably need to start reading my Bible in a different way. I'm going to mix it up. I'm going to change it up. I'm going to bring someone else into my life. I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to go for it. You know why? Because I'm running a race, and I care about growing, and I want to do it, and I want to stay in love with him. And to stay in love with the Lord is going to require effort on our part. It's like any relationship we have. Spend time and how we spend that time. Be present in that time. That matters. Last thing I'll say, when we do that, then Paul says it's going to show up, right? It's going to show up in our actions, in our attitudes, in the way in which we basically, you know, represent his heart to other people. That's just a fact. It starts showing up in our lives. That's what God wants. He doesn't want it to just be out there. He wants it to show up. And that means I'm going to have to pay attention to these things. I'm going to have to really pour my heart to being open to the new things God wants to do. The wise life is a good life. It's practical. It's tangible. It's sacrificial, but it's a product. It's a product of effort, but it's good effort. You know when you finish something that you really poured yourself into and you know, I worked hard and I did good work. That is a certain blessing there that doesn't just come when I just casually do something and kind of make my way through it. I put in some time. But when you really have to work, when you really pour your heart, when you give it your best, or at least close to it, that, that there is something deeply satisfying about knowing that you've really, see, my grandfather said to me, I'll leave it with, I'll leave it with this. He said something so profound. He said, it's going to sound so simple. He said to me, because one time I was kind of saying, you know, Gramps, I'm, uh, you know, I was talking about Jesus. It was, there were some things that was, wasn't happening the way I wanted them. He told me, he says, look, if you're going to do it, follow Jesus. If you're going to do it, do it. And he walked away. <laughs> I was like, that's it? Yeah, what you're saying is, if you're going to do this, then give it your best. And don't quit just because it's not going easy for you. Follow him. If you're going to follow him, follow him. If you want to say you love him, then show him you love him. Say you love him, don't spend any time with him. You gotta spend time in his word. You wanna know what he thinks. His wisdom flows. Your word is spirit, it is life. Let's pray. 
Lord, we, we, we ask you to meet us where we are. And I pray that you would, you would call us to deeper places. And I pray that these coming months would be, would be weeks and in, in a season of expansion of wisdom in our life that would show up in very practical, meaningful ways, particularly around the area of self-restraint, but also in the area of being able to bless others and to create and architect our lives properly. Um, I pray that you would give us additional capacity as we engage your word and hear others share around it to be able to negotiate the, the challenging parts of life so that our feet would not slip. Yes, Lord. We would not slip there, that even in treacherous places, Lord, we would, we would have a certain degree of nimbleness that would allow us to negotiate it properly and uh, prevail. So I pray for an expansion for every one of us, wherever we are in you. I ask that you would, you would bless our closing song, bless our time of giving. But I, most of all, Lord, I ask that you would bless all of us to have a desire to want to grow and um, deepen our love for you, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.